Welcome to Whenever Worship with Washington Farm United Methodist Church. Our daily life can make it hard to connect with God at 10 a.m. on a Sunday morning. Whenever Worship helps you connect whenever you can, wherever life takes you with patterns of prayer, reflection, and conversation that will help you lift your heart up in all of the ways that we live out our lives as people of a living faith in a living God. Many years ago, when I was in the ninth grade, I remember taking jars of broth, boiling the broth, canning one, and letting the others sit exposed to air. Like scientists in the 18th century, our class observed the growth of organisms in the broth that was exposed to air. Our teacher explained that this growth of organisms out of seeming nothingness gave rise to a theory called spontaneous generation. From the time of Aristotle through the Enlightenment, scientists believed that living things could grow out of inanimate matter. In the 16th century, one scientist even described recipes for things. His recipe for mice was a piece of soiled cloth plus wheat left for 21 days. And then his recipe for scorpions was basil placed between two bricks and left in sunlight. Because they lacked the ability for microscopic investigation, their theories were linked to what they saw and experienced in the world. Now, today, it's, it's pretty easy for us to hear these theories and laugh a little. I mean, they sound pretty preposterous, and, and that's probably why all these years later, I actually remember this lesson. But just because our ability to see smaller and smaller things has gotten bigger and bigger, it doesn't mean that we aren't still held captive by the world that we experience through our senses. For most of us, we interpret this world by seeing this world. The story of Thomas is part of our lectionary post-Easter. Post-resurrection, the church likes to really make an example of poor Didymus. We parade him around in the lectionary and in Sunday school as if he's literally the only person who has ever struggled to take this whole resurrection malarkey fully on faith. I mean, several days before Thomas even has a conversation about his doubts, the Marys tell Peter and the others what they experienced at the tomb early on the first day of the week. In the Gospel of John, we don't hear how Peter nods his head and reminds them that this is how their friend Jesus always told them it would go. No. In this Gospel, Simon Peter and the beloved disciple engage in a foot race to go and see what's actually taken place. They have to see it to believe it. That evening, when Jesus does appear to the disciples, he doesn't even expect that they will believe without seeing. In verse 20 of this, of John uh, 20, 19 through 29, uh, what we find is that we, that Jesus showed them his hands and his side. They didn't 
I didn't even have to ask. Jesus just knows that they need to see before they'll believe. And yet, because Thomas tells his friends that unless he can see the mark the nails made in the hands of Jesus and the wound the spear made in his side, he won't believe it's really Jesus. Because he's honest, we call him Doubting Thomas, and and he becomes an object lesson about what real faith shouldn't look like. But that's not the point of Thomas's story. The author of the Gospel of John describes their purpose in writing like this. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing, you may have life in his name. Have you ever read the Gospel of John and noted how much of it is written to say to you, this is an eyewitness account. This is what someone saw. Have you ever paused and and wondered why this author cares so much about making sure that you know that the events being described happened? So many of the stories in John are, are in the form of testimony, as if someone was giving an eyewitness account in a court of law. And even when they're not written exactly like that, they lean so heavily on seeing that that it's kind of hard to miss. One of the longest stories in John is the story of the healing of the blind man. Jesus heals a man who has been blind since birth. Suddenly this man can see and everyone is trying to figure out how he's seeing, why he's seeing, and and who did this to him, and, and maybe a little bit about what he thinks about all of this. He's questioned so thoroughly by the religious leaders that he starts to feel a little snarky. We read that the religious leaders said to the blind man, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I've told you already and you wouldn't listen. They just can't understand how any of this has happened because you see, they didn't see it happen. And because they they just get so fed up with trying to figure out what's going on, they they finally just make this man leave. Jesus finds him again and and asks if he believes in the Son of Man. He answered Jesus, and who is he, sir? Tell me so that I may believe in him. And Jesus said to him, you have seen him. The one speaking with you is he. And the man said, Lord, I believe. You see, Thomas isn't any weaker in faith than anyone else in that gospel. Thomas needs to see the signs of the resurrection just like the rest of us. In this story that we've become accustomed to use to shame Thomas, Thomas bears our own need to see in order to believe. Thomas investigates Jesus's wounds on our behalf. He he becomes our witness. Having declared that he needs to see to believe, we're not to suppose that we're better than he is, but that we are the same as he is. All throughout John, seeing is believing. And because they saw and believed, the hope is that you will believe because they saw. There are at least three variations on verse 1935, which says, He who saw this has testified so that you may also believe. His testimony is true, and he knows that he tells the truth. 
We've spent the last few weeks exploring all of the ways in which our world can feel like it's unraveling. We heard the weeping of those who saw the temple fall and were taken into exile. We heard the disciples lose their faith in their daily walk with Jesus. We heard the pain in Sarah's laugh. We heard the fear in Ananias' voice when God told him to go to Saul on the street called Straight. We heard the lament that wisdom can't be found in the land of the living. And each and every moment that we feel like our world is unraveling, we're saying we can't see, so we can't believe. But what is it exactly that we can't believe? I mean, is it that we struggle to believe that Jesus died and on the third day he rose again? Are we struggling to believe that Jesus fed a multitude twice with leftovers? Are we struggling to believe that Sarah had a baby at almost 90? I don't know. I feel like we can make our way into these stories. I'm not sure that that's the cause of our collective trouble, of our unraveled dreams, our unraveled faith, our unraveled hope, our unraveled selves, our unraveled world. I think our doubt is is much more insidious than that. I think we struggle to believe that God is God, that that God acts like God, that, that God's love is, in fact, steadfast. You see, we're, we're pretty flighty people. Our likes and dislikes switch with the wind. We, we hurt each other a lot, sometimes even purposely. We withhold favors because of petty grievances. We hold on to debts forever, and we only begrudgingly apologize and accept apologies from others. We fear losing power. We fear losing control, and we'll do almost anything to maintain both. We are so far deep into our fears that that we struggle to imagine a better way. How can we conceive of a God who dealt with Sarah as God had said or or did for Sarah as God had promised? How can we conceive of a God who guided Moses and Gideon, Jonah and Ananias exactly as God said God would? It's not the the resurrection story that bothers us. It's, It's the promise God fulfilled in that story. Because if we don't keep our promises, why should God? When God promises that we will live abundantly, we doubt that we will. When God promises that we will be made whole, we we doubt that we ever can be. When when God promises that that we are God's people, we doubt that we ever were. When, When God promises that we will do great things, we doubt that we will do anything. And when God promises mercy and justice, we doubt that God means us. But what if, what if the signs in John aren't the things that the people are witnessing to? What if their witness is actually to the fulfilled promises of God? What if John the Baptist isn't testifying to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God? What if he's testifying to the promise God made to the prophet Isaiah of a coming Messiah? What if the miracle of the blind man isn't him being born blind and suddenly being able to see? What if it's the fact that God said God would heal him and then God did? What if the raising of Lazarus isn't about a dead man walking again? What if it's the fact that Jesus told Mary that he would and then he did? What if the miracle isn't the sign at all? 
What if the sign is actually God's steadfastness? The story of Thomas isn't the story of doubt. It's the story of an unraveling of doubt. In a world where no one keeps all of their promises, God shows us that God keeps every single one. The author of the Gospel of John wants you to believe, to, to believe in the stories, sure, but mostly believe that God fulfills God's promises and, and God fulfills the promises that God makes to you. God knows that you're full of doubt about that and, and that's okay because the God who is willing to show you the nail marks and the spear wound is, is also the God who will show up in the unlikeliest of places. God will show up in Babylon or, or walking on the water in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. God will show up as, as three visitors in a tent or, or as a man from Tarsus with a reputation who's staying in the house of Judas on a street called Straight. God will show up in an argument between friends or, or in the middle of a room after being dead for two days. And when God shows up, God will invite you to cast your fingers into God's wounds so that your doubt might be unraveled, so that you might see and believe. Not that God has wounds that you can touch, but, but that God keeps God's promises. God promised that Jesus would die and be raised again. God promised that you would be too. See, believe, and know that God... God is good.